welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine. Good morning, everybody. How are you this morning? Kayla, Dominique. Good morning. Morning. Hello, everyone. Today we have a special guest, and I've really, really been looking forward to this interview. Her name is Linda Aber. She is an addiction parent coach at the Shabbat Lifeline Addiction Care Center in Montreal. She is an attachment-focused parent coach, nurtured heart approach trainer, theraplay specialist, heart math, anxiety reduction practitioner, and family life educator and proud adoptive mother. Number one, I think, proud adoptive mother. For over 25 years, Linda has been providing parent coaching, educational support groups, social skills and emotional regulation groups for parents, youth and families living with ADHD, learning disabilities, mild autism, anxiety, oppositional defiance, and attachment disorders. Linda also presents teacher workshops at various Montreal schools and organizations. Welcome, Linda. We are so happy to have you here today with us. Thank you so much, Lori. It's a, such a, a thrill and an honor for me to be here with you, all of you. So I guess where I want to start is the beginning of my journey, you know, to understand who I am and what I do. So I was a nurse for over 25 years and I worked in a hospital on psychiatry and my husband and I became parents in a very unique way. We adopted two kids from Russian orphanages back in 1992 and uh, we didn't want babies at that time. We wanted older children because the older kids weren't being adopted and so we adopted our son at the age of five and a half and my daughter was four months younger. And they weren't biological sibs. They came from different parts of Russia, different orphanages, and they were uh, relinquished at birth. So they lived all their lives in orphanages. And it was really difficult because they had just, you know, gone through their own traumas. There were 100 kids in the orphanage with two caregivers. So they missed all of the developmental steps, the secure attachments when they were hungry, when they were sad, when they were, you know, wet, when they were in distress, they self-soothed. Their inner world was, their outlook of the world was, can't trust big people. So here I was, this loving mother who only wants to hug and kiss and cuddle and protect. And like, they put their hands up and it was like, whoa, lady. <laughs> and so... It was really a very difficult time to be able to understand what was really going on for them. I had done all the research, but, you know, when you live it, it was something different. And my kids were developmentally so behind. My son at the age of five and a half didn't even speak Russian. He invented his own language. He grunted a lot. And he had 18 teeth that needed to be filled because there was no toothbrush and toothpaste. So he had a lot of cavities. There were so many things going on. And he was diagnosed with ADHD, mild autism, fetal alcohol, every learning disability imaginable, Tourette's. And by the time he was 14, 15, he was finally diagnosed with bipolar. 
they didn't believe in bipolar here in Quebec. It was really difficult. And so the doctors kept blaming him and saying that it was his behavior was uh, he was just seeking attention. And, and I was the mother who just didn't know how to parent. So when I finally found a psychiatrist who, you know, was a um, specialist in bipolar, it was wonderful to get the uh, diagnosis because the right medication really helped. And my daughter was diagnosed with ADD, uh, many learning disabilities, severe attachment disorder, and personality disorder. And so we, it was a really difficult time for us. And as most parents back in the 90s, what I did was I, you know, did a lot of reading, which was all negative. And then I got them involved in occupational therapy, speech therapy, and we, we saw psychologists. I got them into social skill programs, but nothing seemed to work. And so I ended up going down to conferences in the States for ADD, autism, attachment, learning disabilities. And I met the most amazing professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists who had 90 minute workshops. And I walked in and I sat there with tears coming down my cheeks because they were talking about my kids and what I could actually do to help them. And I came home and I said to my husband, I got to go train. Got to go help myself learn what I need to do to be able to help our kids. And that's what I did. And I became certified in a lot of the approaches that you talked about. And I've been helping other families since the 90s because it's really important to be able to help our kids. And I went through with our children, we went through the addictions, the running away, the hanging with gangs. I mean, you name it, we went through it. And today I can tell you that they're 34 and soon to be 35 and living on their own. And my daughter just got married in September and all of the difficult times that we went, the horrendous times we went through only made our relationship stronger today. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And as parents, we need to be able to take care of ourselves, learn about ourselves as we are gaining strategies to be able to help our kids. But we are number one, because if, you know, if we're not good for our, ourselves, we can't be good for any of our loved ones, right? So that was a really big piece for me because I was exhausted. I was, you know, at the very beginning, I yelled, I screamed. I didn't know what to do. My nervous system was like, I was in alert all the time. The negative talk, you know, was coming out of my mouth. I really didn't know what to do. There were so many fires to put out. And so I really needed to, number one, understand. We're going to talk now about addiction. Understand what addiction is. Understand what my children needed from me. Because all of our kids need to feel seen, felt, heard, understood, validated, we need that connection. And when I read all the books that I was reading in the 90s, I'm an old gal, all those books were all behavior modification and it was all negative. Your kids do this wrong and this is the consequence. And, you know, when we talk about sending them to their room and telling them to come out when they feel better, when they're regulated and the kind of consequences we give, it was just a disconnect rather than a connection. And what we need you know, with our children, especially with addiction, is connection and using positive language 
and validating not the wrongdoing, validating the right doing. Because even in a difficult moment, our kids are always doing something right. And we need to change our lens to be able to, to see it. So that's my mission. That's my, that's my passion, to be able to help others who are struggling. And to be able to help myself, I had to realize that I was in post-traumatic stress. I was having trauma. How could you not have trauma? You're traumatized. We're traumatized. Everyone has trauma. I mean, trauma can be as small as being bullied at school, not fitting in with your friends. It affects your nervous system. It affects your psyche. It affects your inner narrative, your portfolio of who you believe you are. So for a kid, if you are living in a home with neglect, as my kids were, if you are living in a home with abuse, watching, witnessing abuse, if you're living in a home with loved ones, parents, extended family that have an addiction, you're being traumatized. And when we don't heal, when we don't understand, when we don't heal, this is all of us, it stays within our body. There's an, a fabulous book called The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van Gogh, I think his name is. It's an amazing book. And, you know, I did some coaching, took a course uh, all about the work of Peter Levine. And we all go through trauma, but when the trauma is stays within our body, we're triggered. So when we are triggered, we're not responding to the feelings in the moment. We're responding to the feelings that we had in the past. And uh, I was talking to a parent yesterday and she was sharing, you know, she was crying and she was sharing that her son who who's in active use they had a really huge argument and he yelled at her. He told her to get out of his life and he ignored her for two days and she was crying. And I said, what are you feeling? And she said, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, rejected. I'm feeling abandoned. And I said to her, okay. So I said, when did you, when did you feel that feeling? When do you, do you remember when you felt that feeling of being rejected? And in a nanosecond, she said, yeah, my friends, I had, three very close friends. We were walking home from school one day and they ignored me. And I felt that feeling inside me and they ignored me. And she said, it wasn't just for that one time. It went on for a few days. And so I never spoke to them again. I made new friends, but it always stayed within me. And I said, and what has it been triggered during your life? And she said, yep. She says, I walk on eggshells when I meet new friends. You know, she said to me, oh my God, that's how I feel when my son ignores me. So we have to be very cautious. You know, we have to have that understanding of what our traumas were in the past and how we are playing it out when we're dealing with our kids or loved ones that have an addiction. Because we go to places that are very dark. You know, our anger, our feelings of rejection. Does that make sense to you, girls? Uh, 100%. <laughs> I'm just sitting here listening to you. And yeah, I totally agree. What you're talking about speaks to intergenerational trauma and how there's, there's starting to be a lot more research into understanding that if we can pull the plug on that intergenerational trauma, and if we can stop it at one generation we can affect huge change for future generations. 
And everything that you're talking about makes total sense to me and is also my experience and my family's experience with addiction and with other mental health challenges that we face, not just addiction. I think the other thing that's really important is that when you said that it doesn't have to be massive traumas to have this kind of impact, it's the experience of it being traumatic. That's really essential here. And when we're little, things that we could take now are horrendous to us at that age because we have no control. And then if there's repetitive trauma, it just accumulates. You know, one of the ways I like to think about this is it creates this lens that we see the world through. And the work is about taking off the lens so that we could actually be more present in the moment, which is really hard work, but that's the work. Yeah, yeah. That is the work and taking off that, you know, the lens, that's the learning because, you know, when we're going through the journey of helping our loved ones through addiction, it's like the metaphor for me is like being on a waterbed. So when your loved one is moving on the bed, everybody in the family feels that ripple. So it's important to know that the entire family, it's not just your loved one's problem, it's the entire family that are feeling it. And we need to be able to take care of everyone. Everyone is being affected. And most parents don't realize that they are put into a place where they can experience post-traumatic stress. You know, when they come to us and they're, they're depressed, they're tired, can't move. I mean, it's really important to understand, be able to, to help them. There's a huge link between addiction and trauma and living with your loved one who's in active use, not ready to go for help. And we struggle. We struggle. It's really pronounced. And besides the grief and the rage and the depression and the shame and the fear, and, and I'm also talking about, you know, some parents who will, who will talk about their five domains, the kids' five domains, the educational. They're dropping out of school. Their grades are, that's traumatic for parents because they want them to be able to achieve. Or the social, the kids are isolating in their room. They're eating in their room. There's no family a sacred family time of connection. They're uh, not socializing with friends. There's a lot of conflict. There's behavioral problems. It's, uh, it causes parents a lot of strong feelings. We need to be able to help parents understand that the most important part of recovery is their relationship with their kids. But in taking care of themselves, it's important to understand themselves. Some of the work of Peter Levine, who calls it somatic experiencing, a lot of the exercises I want to discuss with you today to help us as parents retune our nervous system. But he explains, because he's done a lot of research with animals in the wild, and he explains, I'll give you a visual, a cheetah is after a gazelle. And so it catches it and the gazelle falls down. The cheetah has it by the neck and the gazelle goes into its nervous system response of dorsal vagal, which we're going to talk about, but it is that collapse response. It's now immobilized and playing dead. It's in fear. And it's not mobilized to get up and run because it knows it's... So what it's doing is it's playing dead. So the, the aggressor thinks that it's dead. The body functions, you know, stop, whatever. And so the cheetah, now a lion is coming to try and get the gazelle away from him. So now the cheetah's letting go of the gazelle and he's fighting with the lion. But what happens because the gazelle is having a lot of stress, right? It's got that stress reaction. 
of immobilization, which is like depression. And its body now is coming back from the trauma because it knows it can get mobilized and run away. And so what it does is it starts to shake, it starts to quiver, and it shakes off the trauma. And the adrenaline and the cortisol is running through the body and it goes up that ladder, it's now mobilizing and runs away. And he says that animals, when they do that shaking mechanism, that body mechanism, it heals them from the trauma. And they don't remember, they're not afraid. But we as humans don't do that, we don't know about that. So we keep that trauma, we don't really heal from it, it stays within us. And that's why whenever we're triggered by events in the present or future events that will happen, we go back to the old, where we're traumatizing all the time. And I found that really fascinating. And so, you know, I said to myself, I need to find tools going to help me out of that trauma when I'm feeling it. So that's what I, I wanted to share with you today. I wanted to talk about the nervous system, if that's okay. Can I just add one thing that I think you said, Linda, that I think is really, really important for families that are going through this? Because we hear this over and over again as families. We hear you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take care of yourself. And I think a lot of families, it's almost like we need to add an end piece to that, that the statement can't end at you've got to take care of yourself because I think that family members don't understand what that means. And they don't understand it in that if I'm taking care of myself, then I'm not helping my loved one, right? That I'm being selfish or how can you expect me to focus on me when this individual is in this state right now and I'm responsible for this or I've got to help. And so I feel like the wording has to be extended out and it has to be, you have to take care of yourself so that you can be helpful. You can be in a helpful state for everybody around you, not just you, but everybody around you. So it's important and, and it's a journey and family members might not get it for a while. It's a journey, but the healthier that you are both mentally and physically, the more of a help you're going to be for the people around you, including your loved one with substance use disorder. Absolutely. And, and that's where the education piece is so important, to be able to explain to them the why. Because if you think about it, they're just stuck in their nervous system. Mm -hmm. And we all know that, you know, you can't really teach or a child when they're in their right brain moment, <laughs> when they're, um, they're reactive. And parents are reactive. And so we can say all the words, but they're still in that reactive state. It's really important to, to talk about states. Dominique, I think you have a question. I love what you're saying, Linda, because you know it's reactivity. That's how it feels. And it also feels very personal. You can't not take it personally if you're reacting from being triggered by some, the, the whole thing doesn't work from beginning to end because now you're reacting, you're giving a bad response. And the pattern that you're trying to stop or change slightly, your part of it continues. You get this repetitive pattern over and over again. So until you are able to react less, react more with a bit of a pause and not see it as something being done to you as personally, a personal attack, 
you aren't going to be helpful. You're going to be upset and your side of the equation gets more hurt. It's this imperative we're talking about is if you're going to fix the interaction, if you're going to fix this moment of connection, you have to appreciate your part in how you're not connecting. And then by showing that you're changing your part and connecting in a gentler, more compassionate, more respectful way, you get that back in response. You're more likely to get that back in response. I love our, our work looking at outcomes is we see that the family member gets extremely helped in building connection through the work on allies in recovery, very much what we're all saying. And then if you ask the family member, how's your loved one doing? Are they responding better? Something like 60% are saying, my loved one is extremely responding better. I mean, I'm seeing a huge difference in the connection. And that, I was just on, the, on a Zoom yesterday with a mom, and she said, I think that this is really critically, centrally important, and I never got it before, and I'm getting it now, which is this interaction, this moment of connection, how you manage that moment is so central to everything that we talk about in Allies. And Linda, your, your work and, and your experience just underlines that for us, so it's great. I love what you said, because it's all about that connection. It's all about that understanding. That's why I love the work that you do. I love the support, the education, the guidance that you give parents because they're so in need. And it's a beautiful approach and a pathway to a child's heart and also to ease the parent's heart and give them that understanding. And that's why I love what I'm going to be introducing to you, because it fits so beautifully into the parent model and what you're teaching in your craft model. I just love it. So I want to explain a little bit about the nervous system and the polyvagal theory, which was developed by Stephen Porges. And we all come into the world wired to connect. And we embark on this journey to feel safe in our body, in our environment, and in our relationships, right? Especially with our kids. And our nervous system is kind of like a smoke detector. It's constantly looking (laughs) to make sure that we're safe. You know, it's our survival system. And our brain and our bodies receive a lot of dopamine, a lot of stress hormones. And I wanted to explain the nervous system So the takeaway that you guys have today, everyone who's listening to this, is maybe a a visual that you can hold anytime you're having a difficult time with your own feelings and in interacting with your kids because their nervous systems are like on high alert too. The vagus nerve is the epicenter of our mind and body connection. And let me just explain what the vagus nerve is. Our body has a lot of nerves in it, but the vagus nerve is the longest nerve. It goes from your your brain. It interweaves in the muscles of your face when you smile. It interweaves through the middle ear. So it picks up the frequency of hearing, you know, our loved ones. It goes down into your larynx, so our voice or that prosody, that melodic, oh, sweetheart, that kind of like a motherese kind of language that we use. It weaves through your heart, weaves through your lungs, all the way down to your digestive system. So when you are angry, when you are anxious, oh, oh, actually, the vagus nerve is the basis of parasympathetic. When you're feeling really good, when you're restful, when you're happy, when there's no stress hormones going, it's just oxytocin. You know, you look at your kid and you're going, oh, 
if you're having a lovely moment or a dog and you're feeling great. I mean, that is a lovely feeling for us. And then you get angry, something triggers you or you get upset and your vagus nerve, you know, your smoke detector, <laughs> your amygdala is sending a message to the brain. Your vagus nerve responds and all at once your heart starts to beat and your lungs, you know, your breathing might become more rapid. Your muscles get tight. Stress hormones are coming in. And some kids, young kids will even talk about, you know, when they're anxious, they feel butterflies in their stomach. That's your vagus nerve. Your vagal nerve is talking constantly to your brain. And so that's what's happening when we go into stress. That's what's happening for our kids when they become reactive and they go into stress. So the polyvagal theory has three key sections. So think of a ladder. At the very top of the ladder is the ventral vagal, which is, for me, social engagement. That's the stuff we teach about in craft. When we are using our social engagement, which is the top part of the vagus nerve, our head down to our heart, we're smiling at our kids, right? So they're picking up that smile. They're hearing our voice. They're listening to the, the pitch, the frequency. And so that right away can help connect and calm them. That's co-regulation. It starts in our vagal. Think of a baby crying. You pick up the baby. Nobody had to tell you to read a book on parenting. You knew how to calm a baby with your smile, with your eye contact, with your tone of voice. That's connection. And then we get triggered. Now we're going down the ladder to the sympathetic region where we get angry, where we get upset, you know, where maybe we're nervous. We mobilize. Now the stress hormones are coming in and we're ready to fight, say stuff that we shouldn't be saying. We do a lot of negative talk in our sympathetic nervous system and also our feet to run away. We open the door, we see a robber there. And so, of course, we're going to want to get away. But if it's a really difficult situation, what happens is we go even lower down the ladder to our dorsal vagal, which is where we become immobilized like that. Animal was telling you about the impala that was taken by the cheetah, where we become immobilized. This is depression. This is where we shut down. This is where nothing's going on. So let's say the four of us are out for dinner. I'll give you an example. And we're in our social vagal, you know, our ventral vagal. We're eating, we're laughing, we're having such a great time together. We're connecting, you know, we're doing all the stuff that we'll be doing with our kids when we are doing positive talk with them, when we're um, giving them us, when they're, example, not using, right? That Those rewards. And then all at once we hear bang, 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 bang. We look at each other, we start getting triggered. We think it's gunfire. It's not gunfire, but we start getting nervous and we start mobilizing to find a way out of the restaurant. And then, you know, Dominique, you say, girls, it's July the 4th. It's probably fireworks we're listening to. So now you've given meaning. We all understand why we're reacting that way. And we can climb up that ladder and go back into that connecting uh, ventral vagal using our, our upper vagus. But let's say it really is gunfire. Worst case scenario. And the terrorist is outside the restaurant. We can't flee outside the restaurant. So now what we're going to do is go down that ladder into dorsal vagal, look for a place to hide, maybe in the kitchen, go under the table and become immobilized and frightened and shut down. And it's a survival skill. These are all survival skills. So I would love to invite you to use this ladder 
as a framework whenever you become triggered or you see your child is triggered? Are they in dorsal? Are they depressed? Are they shut down? Are they self-isolating? Are they getting triggered and going in sympathetic, being very mouthy, uh, being angry, showing anxiety, or even yourself when you're getting triggered? How do you bring yourself and your loved one? First of all, you have to bring yourself up to your ventral vagal so that you're in a parasympathetic. And then once you have gained your own emotional regulation, stepping back, giving meaning like we did with the fireworks, being able to calm yourself, how then are you able to help co-regulate, be able to help your kids? That is really the beauty of the polyvagal system and the understanding of all of us that are going through trauma ourselves and our loved ones. This concludes part one of our interview. Tune in next time to hear the rest. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.